Every day, traders and investors dive in to tackle the ever-changing markets to find opportunity. Futures Radio Show is your number one source for answers to the questions that all market participants want to ask. Veteran futures trader Anthony Crudelli sits down with the most influential leaders and top traders in the industry. Now, here's your host, Anthony Crudelli. What's up, everybody? Anthony Crudelli here, and thank you for tuning in for this episode with Samir Madani. Futures Radio Show is sponsored by CME Group. They are the world's leading and most diverse futures and options exchange. CME Group's markets help individuals and businesses around the world effectively manage risk. For access to free educational tools and resources for the active individual trader, please visit activetrader.cmegroup.com. Remember, new shows are posted on Mondays and Thursdays. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes. This show is also sponsored by Trading Technologies, FTSE Russell, and RJO Futures. To learn about some great offers from these sponsors, please visit futuresradioshow.com slash sponsors. Today, I spoke with the co-founder of Tanker Trackers, Samir Madani. We kicked off today's show with Sam explaining how Sweden is dealing with COVID-19. They aren't on lockdown like many of us here in the U.S. or in Europe. And he said it's because Sweden always practices social distancing. And it was nothing new for them to do so when COVID-19 hit. I thought this was very interesting, as this could be what life may be like here in the U.S. and other countries for the foreseeable future. Next, we discuss Sam's recent bottom call in oil when it hit 20 bucks, and why he decided to get long a gas and oil fund. He gives us the supply and demand situation before and after COVID-19 hit. And last but not least, we talked about the upcoming OPEC meeting and Sam's thoughts on what he thinks the deal will be. So without further ado, let me take you right to the interview with Sam. Sam, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Anthony, for having me on. It's great to speak with you, my friend. And we're recording the day before your birthday, so happy birthday. Thank you very much. And I heard it's also your brother's birthday on the exact same date. Yeah, same date, same year. So I'll never forget your birthday. And, and uh, I look forward to wishing you birthday, your happy birthday tomorrow on Twitter. Sam, we got a lot to talk about today. I think crude oil is really, it's the biggest story that's not the biggest story in markets, right? I mean, obviously, COVID-19 right. is the number one thing that we're all focusing on. But crude oil is a huge story with everything that's going on. So a lot to talk about there. Before we get into that, you're in Sweden. You've been tweeting a lot about what Sweden has been doing dealing with COVID-19. Why don't you talk to us a little bit about that? Right. So we don't have an enforced lockdown here in this country. We have a lockdown for seniors living in retirement homes and generally people who are retired just to stay home as much as possible. But for everyone else uh, who's uh, young and able and healthy, uh, is encouraged um, not necessarily to to spend too much time outside, but to go about their normal day if they can, without actually um, taking it, uh, taking you know, going too far with it. So, for instance, in this society, we have social distancing since forever. I mean, I moved here in the early '90s, so almost 30 years ago. And I always wondered if I stunk or something because nobody would walk near me or or, or, or whatever. But you look at the um, the bus stops; people 
normally keep around uh, three to six feet uh, distance from each other. And that's something that's just ingrained in, in, in society here. Uh, so teaching Swedes to keep their social distance is actually not a real discussion point. People just do it normally, naturally. So um, the way it works is that high schools are off. Uh, so those kids who can study from home uh, using Zoom or whatever, they will do that. But uh, the younger kids, uh, they they go to school still and they keep they, they just learn the routine of what they should and shouldn't do. And uh, I have um, four kids. The eldest, she's 12, so she's in school. But the younger three boys, they are in preschool. And because of the fact that one of them had a runny nose a few weeks ago, all had to stay at home. So uh, they haven't been to preschool in nearly a month now. And um, all in all, I would say when I look at the traffic, it's a lot higher than it is in, in the rest of the world right now. Maybe not as much as China, but um, there, it's, it's quite busy nonetheless. And now with the warm weather and sunshine, people do go outside. And when we look at the stats itself, when we look at the stats itself, the death count today, the total that we have in the country is 591. Uh, we're a population of 10 million. Yeah, that's why I brought this up because of some of the tweets that you've been talking about. And I think a lot of people here in the U.S. and across the globe are wondering what's going to be the new norm, right? And like you were saying, which I had no idea of this. I've never been to Sweden. I look forward to going and visiting you someday. But it's like social distancing is or, is something that's already a part of your your lives out there. And that's why you guys aren't on lockdown because – it's basically, I think, what a lot of us here might anticipate to be the new norm. Right. When I mean, I've lived all over the world. I've been to around 80 countries, and uh, my heart is always in Southern Europe and so on. And I, I see how people are there compared to here. For instance, there they, they do a lot of hugging and, and uh, cheek kissing and so on. You don't do that here. And here you do a quick hug, and, and uh, then you keep your distance. But now there's no hugging at all. There's no handshaking. People are just keeping distance. Their radar, the personal radar is just cranked up a little bit higher. And uh, in the stores, everyone's walking really slow and just eyeballing each other, make sure that they don't uh, bump into one another. So there is movement, uh, but there's a lot more caution. And so they're going, go, they're going for this herd immunity um, concept or theory. So we'll see how it pans out over time. Um, the, the country itself is prepared. They've doubled the amount of ICUs, and also they have uh, plenty of PPEs available. Uh, so there's no shortage. Well, I'm an Italian boy from Chicago. I hug and kiss everybody, Sam. So for me, it's going to be <laughs> quite the adjustment when we go back to normal. Um, I, I want to move on and talk about uh, crude oil. Uh, you know, I was actually going back and looking at when you and I first spoke on the show, we were talking uh, on Twitter before then, it was 2016. Mm -hmm. So you've been doing this for quite a while now, Sam. Uh, and yep. recently, you were talking about how you believe that $20 oil was pretty much the bottom. I don't know if you called it to say this, this was going to be the bottom or should be the bottom. I'll let you talk about that. And then you mentioned yep. to me that you went out and actually for the first time, bought an oil and gas fund at that time because you felt that crude oil was done going lower. Talk to us about why right. you felt so strongly about $20 as being the bottom and talk to us a little bit about what you did as an investment in buying this natural gas and, and oil fund. 
Right. So the way I saw it was that the Dow itself had dropped by a third, whereas crude oil had dropped by two thirds. And I thought that was exaggerated. And of course, the whole picture that was being painted by the media and everyone saying that demand is down so hard. It's like, you know, you're hearing first five million, then 10 and 15 and 20 and 25 and even 35 million barrels per day from 100 million barrels. So it's quite a lot. But what you have to remember is that this is very short lived. And usually recovery, something like this is not necessarily V shape, but it's more like a check mark uh, shape. So it, it takes a little bit longer after it, it hits the very bottom for it to actually start bouncing up. But it does go up gradually over time. I don't expect a full recovery within, say, this year or maybe even next year. But over time, maybe two years, we'll have back to 100 million. I hope not, because I would love to see the atmosphere actually adjust to, to this cleaner air. People will, will get a good feel of like uh, how it is to, to breathe again. And maybe we can make do with, I don't know, 75 or 80 million barrels a day uh, and just cut down on un un unnecessary travel because we're all using video conferencing and so on. So what I saw the opportunity was that this was oversold because it didn't reflect uh, the market. I think it was a, a discount that the industry was was giving to a future wave of investors. And that's how I saw it, because I saw also in the headlines what, a month and something ago that Sam Zell was uh, eyeing uh, an, an entry into the, um, into the oil and gas space. And I thought that's very interesting because I'm actually thinking of if it does go any lower that this is a very interesting long term as well, because I am very confident in U.S. oil and gas industry, uh, even the shale sector, because um, the oil will always be there uh, for the taking. So uh, companies may change names and ownerships, but, but that oil will always exist. And that oil is so important for global energy security. So it's not just a matter of U.S. security, but it keeps everything in balance, given the fact that Russia and OPEC are also there to counterbalance things. So if they had their own way, prices would be a whole lot higher. So I figured that this was now a good entry. And when I, look, when I looked at the graph last week, I saw that oil was stomping on this $20 uh, um, range. And I was thinking for the life of me, why isn't it dropping any further? You know, every day it's like it's, it's going a little bit higher, a little bit lower, but it's still um, waving between 20 and, and 24. And I thought, okay, now's the time. So what I did was on the 27th, I put in an order. The 27th of March, I put in an order, which went effect on the 28th. And I bought for my uh, pension plan. For the first time, I actually um, made a move in like five years where I, I took, because um, I was doing extremely well over the past five years in China. Uh, that fund went up over 120%. Um, and that's included with this um, setback. And I chopped it in half and I took that half and I, and I put it in a, in a, in a fund. Um, and, and that has now risen by almost 17% in just about uh, less than three weeks time. So um, I think that oil and gas did hit the bottom um, back then, last week, and I was very much anticipating um, that there'll be a change in the market very soon. And I thought this week that we would start seeing a big climb in oil price. It happened actually last week. 
And my whole theory on that was uh, Donald Trump. And the fact that he's in there makes it a whole lot more interesting because it's very difficult at times to figure out what the Saudis and what the Russians will do. And so I get kind of irritated and, and amused at the same time when journalists say that, you know, that famous quote, um, sources familiar with Saudi thinking. Well, there's no such thing, because if, if there was, then nobody would have been arrested at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Riyadh, I can tell you that much. So one person I thought I could really tune into, and that would be Donald Trump, because he he is looking for a win right now. Anything to, to keep his mood up because of the fact that he's dealing with so many setbacks. You know, this whole um, past th- almost four years now has been going very well with the stock market. And he's, he looked at that as a reflection of, of, of his, uh, it's like his report card for, for um, his performance. And so this was a massive setback. The fact that the Dow dropped and, and all these coronavirus uh, deaths are happening and uh, a whole number of other things. So he wanted a win. He's looking for a win. And I anticipated that he would come out with a message saying that U.S. would now uh, meet with uh, or meet the, the demand of the others, other oil producers to actually do a cut in production. And so lo and behold, uh, they announced that they would cut the offshore uh, production because it's in federal uh, waters that would scale back around 2 million barrels a day from the 13 million. That was the statement that went out that, that you know, uh, tweet uh, got circulated. And I think it pretty much died because it hasn't been talked about since. And I think they've just been floating ideas or throwing ideas up against the wall in the White House, seeing what will stick. And there are, of course, legal ramifications for every decision. So they have to be very careful about what, what they actually end up going with. Because it's a free market and government can't meddle and and impose uh, uh, things like that, like they do in Russia or in uh, in Saudi Arabia. We can just, you know, overnight just decide how they want to do things. So uh, U.S. is not a nationalized uh, market. And and, uh, it happened. Thursday, the news um, came through and the, the price just shot up. And by Friday, it had shot up even higher. So the full range was up 50%. Now, mind you, during that time last week, I was actually cautioning people, don't buy the narrative. Because the narrative prior to that was that oil would drop even further. Uh, Some were talking about uh, $9, including Donald Trump. And uh, so I I didn't believe that at all because uh, I saw what was happening. It was this herd mentality where everyone was just flocking in the same corner. And I was like, What am I doing all alone in this corner? Because I don't believe that this will actually happen. And I have plenty of data actually to support it. I'm looking at things like NO2 emissions all over the world. Uh, And that's the emissions from everything that's being burnt. So fuel and and industry at large. And this whole world just went uh, blue. So all the red is gone. And I'm seeing things like Russia is going bluer and bluer every day, like just like Antarctica. And North America also losing all its shade of red in, in the uh, Atlantic uh, seaboard. Europe, same thing. Italy, Spain, all that because of the virus, all these lockdowns. And China, however, is turning the other way. They're getting more and more red. So I'm looking at Russia. I'm thinking, wow, they must be in a world of pain right now because they can't uh, produce anything. 
any of the commodities. Like two-thirds of their economy is just around oil and gas. The rest is all the other natural resources. And so if they're not even bringing in income from, the, from that remaining third, then things must be looking really bad. And I told myself, if this is the case, then they're going to need a higher oil price. And uh, not only that, but Russia has a limited oil storage capacity. So when the news came through that the European clients who received the oil from Russia via pipeline, a pipeline called Druzhba, when they told Russia, hey, we've had enough, we can't take in 100% of what you're sending, let's, let's cut back a little bit, like 25%, say, uh, because there's just no demand. I mean, nobody's driving on the streets of Europe. So Russia was, uh, Russia was like, oh, now we have a situation. So we don't have that much storage space. If we're going to overfill our storage, then we're going to have to scale back on production. So I think they are uh, under pressure right now to make sure that OPEC, Russia, and the U.S. do some kind of deal. OPEC and Russia can do a formal deal, but U.S. cannot formally join that deal. Instead, U.S. will have to have its natural pace of things like you're going to have bankruptcies instead. Uh, you're going to have uh, f uh, those um, reasons uh, dragging down the actual production. So today, the Energy Information Administration in the U.S., the EIA, came out with this updated short-term energy outlook. And there we can see that it actually shows a massive drop in production going forth throughout the year. So uh, that might give them give Russia and uh, OPEC at large uh, a signal that U.S. is actually going to take this naturally. So U.S. will never officially be able to tell Russia and, and Saudi Arabia, hey, we're cutting. Instead, those two will have to look at this data and, and stroke their chins and decide whether this is acceptable or not. And I think that it is acceptable because this is as far as U.S. can officially take it. So they're going to have to accept that and go with it. Saudi Arabia is, has pushed it beyond the limit, I would say, because the, the amount that they're pumping now, this 12 million uh, barrels per day, is beyond, I would say, sustainable capacity. Yeah, You cannot push it pedal to the metal uh, all the way. It's like burning the candle on both ends. And I think if they do it long enough, the, the Kraken will awaken. <laughs> so I think what will happen is that they, they, they will pump out as much as they can right now while the deal is still, um, you know, while, while this is, deal is still suspended. And then once the decision comes through, then we'll see uh, something happen. So they can either push the, the production, even, you know, hold it for a while longer, but not too long because it's a matter of storage as well for them. They're going to run out of it. And, and uh, so I think that's, that's, that's what's going on right now. Hey, everybody, a quick pause here to talk about FTSE Russell. They are a leading global provider of benchmarks, analytics, and data solutions. The Russell 2000 Index is a key benchmark for small-cap U.S. stocks. Be sure to check out the E-mini Russell 2000 Index Futures contract, symbol RTY. For more information on FTSE Russell and their products, please visit FTSERussell.com. A lot of questions I have for you. Um, I, I want to talk mm -hmm. about a couple of things first. I want to I go to 
where the fundamentals were prior to coronavirus. And then take us through how we've gotten to where we are now, where I hear things and I don't know how much of this is true or not. I mean, you hear a lot of things that that probably aren't true, but they're saying that there's just so much oil out there that they're just, just sitting in ships in the sea. They have nowhere to store it. So just talk to us about where we were prior to COVID and, and, and take us through to where we are now on the fundamental side of things. Right. So I had a forecast uh, for the end of this year uh, that I was a part of a list here on Twitter. Um, you know, all these different uh, analysts and so on who threw their number. And mine, I think, was something like $74 Brent for end of uh, this year. I think we can safely kiss that goodbye. And if uh, Brent or WTI uh, managed to hold the uh, head above 35, we're in a very good uh, end of the year, I would say. 35 to 40 would be like, you know, a treat right now. But um, we were doing fairly well, I would say. And the fact that um, Libya lost over 90% of their oil production, that actually uh, helps, obviously, the oil price. Now, Libya is still down. They're under 100,000 barrels a day from the 1.2 million. So there's a danger, of course, that if they do decide to come back online right now, which I don't think will happen, then, of course, um, that won't help the price at all. It will end up in the teens for sure. But I'm monitoring it every day, and I don't see any activity there. Uh, so I think, all in all, things were going fairly well. Um, and uh, you had... Prior to that, you had people talking about uh, oil going over 100. Some were even saying 300. And I never bought that at all. I think the best place for oil is in the mid-70s, honestly. Uh, short of that, I think what we need to do as a, as a planet is to cut down on consumption. Because if the, the market can still be strong and bullish even if you cut down, let's say, a quarter of global consumption. It, it sounds like a like a big thing to do. But when you look at it, there's so much wasted fuel every day. Look at all these flights. Why are we flying? We're just flying for the sake of, uh, you know, collecting miles. You know, I'm talking about business uh, travelers uh, going to official part, you know, company parties and so on. There's not really anything, um, anything you really gain out of these trips that you can't do, for instance, over Skype call. And I do all my uh, meetings now online and and it's so efficient and it costs nothing except an hour of your time so i think we're going to see a lot of changes we're going to see a lot more remote working uh people who have been working from home now for for say a month i think their bosses with with the fact that they've lost so much money and and all this uh, you know all business i think in general people are going to start looking at when they when they when they uh, restructure the businesses that if they can see that their employees are working from home more instead and save on, for instance, um, uh, real estate. So um, we were doing well, fairly well. Um, and now we have to just adjust with the times, I think. And the 40 could be the new 60 uh, for all we know. Uh, but I think the price does have good potential in the future if we actually cut down on consumption. Because the thing is that you have demand going down and your supply going up. Now, these two, they have to trail together. Historically, they've always trailed together quite close. You can still have a very bullish market at 75 million barrels per day 
in demand if you supply 74 million barrels per day instead. See what I mean? So now we're in a situation where we have maybe 75 million barrels in demand, but we have 100 million plus in, in supply. So we need to bring that, those two together. If you can't do much about supply, then you can do something about demand. And if you can't do anything about demand, then you have to do something about supply. So how much prior to COVID was being pumped per day? Uh, globally, we're talking about around 100 million barrels per day. Around 100 million. And where are we yeah. currently? Currently, it's probably a little bit higher, uh, maybe 102 right now. And consumption-wise, where are we today? Or then versus Cons- today? Consumption, yeah. So consumption-wise, we were also trailing around there, uh, maybe 99 to 100. And now we are probably in the mid-70s. So ultimately, Sam, I'm wondering, so just hearing you and what you're saying, to me, it still sounds as though uh, the supply is still well above where the demand is. And I agree with you and a lot of what you had said. I think so many more businesses are going to start using Skype, at least for the remainder of this year, most likely. Who knows what the future holds beyond that? But in the short term... We have this supply-demand issue in crude oil that – and I know that you said that you were bullish at $20. You bought the fund. We're seeing a little bit of a bounce. We've got OPEC mm. coming up. Mm. Where do you see it going from here? How are we going to get that balance between supply and demand? Right. So one thing I want to touch on is the demand topic. Now, demand is actually comprised of two things. One is consumption – so that's that's the you know the gasoline at the pumps and so on. The other is actual storage. So a lot of oil is just being bought for the sake of relocating to storage, and um, because it, it rises in value, therefore it's worth a trade in the future. Uh, contango, and so um, what we have today is very low consumption, and it's not down twenty five percent. It's probably down seventy five percent. So. So uh, the actual demand might be down only 25, but consumption is even further. And you can see it for yourself. Just walk out on the street and you'll see it's empty. There's no, there's no traffic at all in, in many of the cities around the world. Most, I would say. So uh, the refining situation is what's causing this. You have a lot of uh, refineries that just aren't processing enough crude right now. And so it just goes into inventory. And that's how we have these builds. So, for instance, the EIA report uh, last week, it showed a further drop in refining under under 15 million barrels per day. And that caused this massive build. What was it? 13 million barrels in crude. And so we're going to be seeing a lot of that going forth. And uh, once we see the refinery runs increasing, it will be as a result of the fact that these lockdowns are are gradually uh, fading away. People are moving about again and so on. Um, we have to see what each government decides around the world on how to do that. Now, we look at China. I'm, I'm following it uh, very closely on a daily basis to see how their traffic is doing. And I can tell you at large that uh, they have managed to uh, regain a lot of um, uh, productivity, uh, which was lost due to the uh, coronavirus. Uh, they were down two-thirds at least uh, when it happened, and now they've come back to uh, two-thirds. So a, they've, they've risen quite a lot. But I don't think that they will go up to 100% again uh, year on year. 
So uh, because of the fact that if they are overproducing product or whatever, and there is lack of demand for it worldwide, then that, they'll be just shooting themselves in the foot. So they're going to hold it between, say, 55 and 66 percent uh, productivity, uh, uh, you know, throughout the country. So um, I think that's that's what's going on. And we're going to have a lot of uh, storage buildup if if this um, deal does not go through. Because currently, there is still a lot of vacancy. Now, you're hearing in the media that everything is just full. Now, actually, it's fully booked. It's not physically full. It's just fully booked. And those bookings can be canceled based on uh, this deal going through. And if, for instance, Saudi has made some bookings, which cost some money, and they're going to have to uh, pay some cancellation fees, then they're going to probably have to do that, for all we know. Same thing with the tankers and so on. Now, if this deal does not go through, and we see a lot of oil enter the market. The best play would be and not just shorting oil, because I do not believe it's wise to short oil from $20. I mean, 20 to zero, there's not much space, you know, because a little tick, $1 up, and you're, you're, you're in a serious uh, mess. No, instead, the best thing probably would be to go into tanker stocks instead, the, the tanker companies that are pushing the crude oil, because the daily rates... So the, the, the fee cost to, to ship the, the actual oil, that's, it's pretty much, I would say it's a Bitcoin right now. It's just been going up and down tremendously. But now because of the fact that this whole uh, topic of flooding oil has happened, it's held very well. So it's, it's very high. It's in the six digit range uh, per day. So over 100,000, sometimes 200,000 uh, dollars a day from normally what used to be like $20,000 a day. So it's quite lucrative uh, to get into tanker stocks if this deal does not work out. And so there's going to be a high demand for VLCCs, the tankers that I track, the very large crude carriers. And what I think will happen is that uh, Saudi Arabia will, will book up every single last one they can get hold of uh, because they're going to be packing so many of them with uh, with oil and they'll be shipping as much as they can to whoever can buy and wants to buy because they have the storage space to take it in. Now, one thing I do fear, however, is uh, any hawkish response by the White House uh, by imposing tariffs on Saudi and Russian oil. And Saudi oil, I'm more concerned about because of the fact that uh, there is a deficit in the trade uh, balance, which is actually in Saudi Arabia's favor, uh, not the U.S.'s. So that's one thing. They'll say, hey, we're buying all these weapons and you're doing this to us, for instance, uh, because Saudi doesn't ship much oil to um, to U U.S. anymore. It used to uh, ship over a million barrels a day up until three years ago. Now it's less than half that around 400,000 a day. So it's not, it's not much. Now, what can happen is, what I'm afraid that will happen is, if they impose this tariff uh, on imports, Saudi will retaliate. First thing they'll do is they will flood uh, the U.S. refiners with cheap oil because it's a free market. Nobody's got to be a patriot. Uh, refiners can buy uh, whatever oil they, 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 that suits their, their books. And if they see that it's much cheaper from US, uh, from Saudi Arabia than it is from USA, then that's what they'll probably end up taking. And we've seen that in 2016. There was a lot of Saudi oil that came in, just flooded the market, and they'll make it cheap. 
And, and the other thing that they'll do is they'll book up every single last tanker that they can get hold of in order to cut off U.S. exports. So they put a stranglehold on U.S. exports. And that means that it, those 3 million barrels per day or 21 million barrels per week that the U.S. normally exports, they just won't move. They'll stop there. And that means that storage will rise even faster. And so U.S. oil producers, you'll, they'll be knocked out one by one by one every single day. And so that's what I fear uh, will happen. So I think we need to find a balance, a geopolitical balance or a market balance, whatever you want to call it. We just need to find equilibrium across this whole market. And I think that's why I also believe that, that there will be a deal. Uh, I think everyone wants to maintain good relations. Uh, Russia, say what you want between U.S. and, and, and Russia. It doesn't matter too much. Uh, all this talk about uh, U.S. Uh, maybe lifting sanctions on Russia if they, if they uh, work uh, on this deal. I don't think that's of any interest to Mr. Putin. Uh, he, he's never cared too much about sanctions at all. Uh, we see that daily with Venezuelan oil that's being moved. So I think a deal is likely in the works. Uh, and I think that's also why Saudi and, and Russia have been patient so far this week, saying that they'll wait for the U.S. to do something. And I think right now today was that signal that the EIA uh, put out their short-term energy outlook showing that uh, there will be a natural decline in production throughout the year. So you say that you believe that there will be a deal. And I heard from you several different scenarios out there. And thank you for sharing them with us as to what what may happen uh, in the oil markets uh, based upon those possible scenarios. But what do you think is going to happen this week? I think, yeah. So I think that the... OPEC plus at large, so it's OPEC plus Russia and other countries, I think that they will have to look at the U.S. and say, okay, if this is the best they can do, then we have to do a little bit more, obviously, because uh, they represent about 40% of the world, uh, or 43% of the world's production combined. So, And there's a number that's been floated around that, that they have to reach a total of 10 million barrels per day in cut during this quarter, too. And then uh, in Q3, it will be smaller. Uh, so one, one proposition I saw was it goes from minus 10 to minus 5. Like I told you, the <clears throat> checkmark-shaped uh, recovery. And I think uh, 10 might be a reach right now, but it's not impossible either. Uh, the only problem is how are they going to chop it up as a group of all these countries? Uh, who's going to do what? And so Saudi Arabia, everyone's going to look at them as, and, and try to put on them uh, as, as many barrels to remove from their production. And of course, Saudi can do quite a lot because they have the storage uh, to throw around. So they can halt a lot of the production. We've seen them do it before after the uh, attacks in, um, in, uh, in September last year. And so they were able to, to push as much oil as possible from storage. So they have plenty of it. I mean, they, you know, they have both in Saudi... And they also have abroad. And in abroad, you know, Egypt, you got dozens of millions of barrels. You have in Rotterdam in the Netherlands. You have in Japan and Okinawa. So they have a lot of storage worldwide that they can actually uh, work with. So the priority for Saudi Arabia is to make sure that they have enough money to meet their budget re requirements and also that their customers are kept well fed. Uh, they always do that. Uh, so they look at things just, you know, it's, it's just a product that they need to move to make ends meet. 
Hey, everybody, I want to take a quick pause and talk about RJO Futures. They are a long-standing brokerage firm with personal broker relationships to learn, discuss, and trade the futures markets. To learn more about RJO Futures, please visit rjofutures.com. A couple more things before we get into, uh, I have some rapid fire questions for you today. I know you've been on the show a bunch of times in the past, but we've got new rapid fire questions. So we're going to get to those later. But you mentioned earlier that you were looking uh, at your satellites and you said you saw a lot of red or some red and a lot of blue. And just for clarification, red means that there's activity. Blue means that there's inactivity. Correct. Right. Uh, nitrous uh, uh, dioxide um, emissions. Okay. Yeah. And you I mentioned that I was taking notes, and you said that nitrogen dioxide. Okay. And and China was the area that had the most red. So essentially, right, right now, yeah, right now. So what's happening is is that they've now gone back to work. Let's call it. That's what you're saying. Exactly. They're they're between. Uh, halfway up or to two-thirds up uh, from, from last year. So they've regained quite a lot. They, they were uh, very blue uh, for, for, for a brief period back in um, early February. And how long were they blue? I'm just curious. I mean, not that I want to compare them to the U.S. or Not Europe. too long, not too long. Because okay. the fact that uh, what they did in China was that they um, quarantined all the key areas that they needed to take care of, like the Hubei area where, where Wuhan is. And they kept productivity elsewhere. Uh, so, for instance, uh, look at Chongqing, which is a massive city, which is very industrial. So you got oil refineries, you got uh, mining, you got everything. And year on year, their actual traffic uh, jam data that we, we collect from TomTom, for instance, it shows that it's actually higher than last year. Uh, so they're being a lot more productive right now. And that's because of the fact that they are uh, no longer riding the bus. People are going to work in their cars because of social distancing reasons. So we're actually seeing more gasoline consumption right now due to the fact that people are keeping their social distance. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it, it really is. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting times. Uh, so, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I got a lot from hearing you talk today about all these different scenarios. I'm going to ask you to give me the most bullish scenario that you see coming out of this week with with OPEC and, and mm-hmm. the most bearish and maybe the one that kind of keeps crude oil where it is because obviously it's all right. about us and, and traders and and just give us those three scenarios let's start off with the most bullish scenario most bullish scenario is we end up with a deal that is maybe between eight and ten million barrels per day in in collective cut and that's factoring in U.S., whatever they uh, have uh, projected. And so that will drive up WTI over the, over the $30 mark, uh, which we're very close to reaching last week, in fact, last Friday. I can't remember it was in the, if, it, if it hit 29 or not, but it was, it was above 28 at least. And so um, yeah, I think uh, 20, almost 29, yeah, 28 and a half or so. So I think uh, it could set up, be set up to go higher uh, above 30 there and hopefully stay in the 30s throughout the rest of the year and maybe even 35, 40 uh, towards the end of it. Now, the bearish scenario is, of course, that 
the deal doesn't go through because the U.S. is a new component being thrown into the mix. I've thought about it a lot. You know, I try to balance the two quite a lot. I have this this bull and bear fight in my in my brain every day. And of course, it's scary because of the fact that uh, this is a this is a new component uh, that's been added. Uh, no, it's been such a tough uh, situation just trying to get OPEC and Russia to work together. And now this new uh, party comes in. So it, it, it makes it a little bit more uh, difficult. You know, you have this normally a tug of war between two sides. Now you have this rope being pulled in three different directions. So if that doesn't go through, obviously, then we're looking at WTI dropping into the teens. And I think at that point, really, Anthony, Libya might as well just come back online uh, because it won't matter anymore. So um, I think that's the, the issue. However, uh, if, for instance, uh, demand does pick up, it will pick up only slowly. Um, and I don't see that uh, we'll get to that 100 million barrel per day consumption anytime soon. It could take years because I think people just hesitate from taking unnecessary air trips, for instance, uh, and, and try to do everything that they can uh, remote. Then, of course, you have people who are just locked up at home, cabin fever, and they don't care right now what happens. People praying for a meteor to strike the planet for all I know. <laughs> so I think uh, anything can happen. You know, people with good marketing skills can sell you a vacation anywhere. <laughs> so what would be the scenario that you think just keeps crude in maybe the range that we've been in uh, over the past couple of weeks? Yeah. So what, in the 20s? Yeah, it keeps us in the 20s. I don't think anything right now will keep it there. Honestly, it's, it's, it's quite extreme. I would say that it, we're either in the, entering the 30s or we're entering the teens. Uh, nobody wants to be in this range right now. And I don't think that uh, anyone beyond the, the refiners would, would be happy with uh, uh, price going into the teens because um, it's not going to benefit the industry. Uh, the guys who, who are the strongest will survive. So you can definitely count on Saudi and Russia um, getting through this, uh, even if it does go into the teens, because it'll just knock out so many more players. But I'm afraid that it'll knock out players in all other countries as well. Um, so you see major impacts on, on, on economies outside of these three. And that's what, I, what I'm fearful about, because a country like Guyana, they just came online with their oil production, you know, with Exxon exploration there. Uh, they just started shipping. I mean, I've counted, I think, like four or five uh, exports so far. And I've been applauding every single one of them because it means that this very poor country now all of a sudden has this massive abundance of wealth that they can use for the next few decades. And all of a sudden this happened. So it doesn't feel right. And so I'd love to see uh, the countries that really, really, really need the oil revenue. I'd love to see them survive even beyond um, next few decades because they need that revenue to build out their infrastructure, build out more sectors and, and, and uh, not lean too much on oil. Because you look at the Middle East, they could have done so much more with their oil revenue over the past decades, but they decided not to. Instead, they wanted to be going for oil domination, market domination. But you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, they have so much more potential uh, of what they could have done. They have very educated people. Uh, they're world travelers. They could have built out more sectors, but they chose not to. And so I would love to see uh, more countries diversify. So just, for instance, Norway with their, with, their, with their wealth fund, that was a very smart move. They built the world's largest wealth fund 
uh, and they only produce one and 1.6, 1.7 million barrels a day. So um, th there's a lot more that can be done if, if countries are responsible uh, and not just squander this resource and, and ready to sell it at whatever price just to uh, dominate the market. It sounds to me as though what you're saying from, from all these different scenarios and everything we talked about today, oil is not going to be range bound here. And like we said, yeah. what was it roughly, let's call it 29 to 20, uh, give yeah. or take a few ticks uh, around there. You, you feel that no matter what happens this week, even if it's kind of in line, this market's going to move quite a bit and, and could take out the high or the low of, of the recent move. Right. Yeah. Right. That's good news for oil traders. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be <laughs> it's going to be busy. All right, exactly. G great stuff, Sam. But we are not done yet. I have rapid fire questions next. If you're ready for those, absolutely. All right, everybody. Our rapid fire segment is sponsored by Trading Technologies. Trade the global markets with TT. They are the world's fastest commercially available futures trading platform. Now with integrated tools for advanced options trading, cryptocurrencies, and trade surveillance. You can try it now for free at tryttnow.com. Sam, first question for you. Who has influenced your life the most and why? That's a very interesting question. I have always sought uh, guidance from people with great experience and so on. I would say, really, it's my brother, uh, my brother Amir. He's um, showed me a lot about uh, how to survive in, in the real world, and uh, I love him so much. He's been through so many issues himself, and um, yeah, my idol. <laughs> God, I get choked up thinking about it. What was one of the hardest things that you've had to overcome in tracking tankers? Oh, God. Um, I can tell you there that uh, I, I love the game now because it's a lot easier now that I understand uh, what's happening. Um, for instance, subterfuge is one of my favorite topics because of the fact that a lot of oil gets moved around the world without uh, detection. And I love a challenge like that because... It sharpens my skills. It gives me broader understanding. I, I don't look at the world anymore as black and white. It's mostly 99.9% .9 gray for me because I see uh, rhetoric being thrown around the media, but then I see the actual uh, truth beneath that. And so, for instance, I've always seen two conflicting countries actually do deals with each other. And even if they're not exchanging bullets, but just throwing words at each other, I see them move the oil. And so I think that's really interesting. And so, for instance, um, one area of interest uh, is, of course, um, Iran, because of the fact that they're under sanctions. And, and uh, I would say that they are the world's best at hiding their oil. And Venezuela doesn't even come close. So it's, um, it's an exciting uh, part of the day for me, uh, because uh, every week they try something new. How has your tracking tankers process evolved since we first spoke in 2016? I would say that uh, any ideas I had back then to automate this uh, have been thrown out the window. I still don't believe in automating the tracking because of the fact that there's so much subterfuge going on. And the fact that we focus on a dozen or so countries that make the headlines for all the wrong reasons uh, it, it means that we have to step up our game in, in actual geospatial analytics um, 
hunting down every single last vessel uh, visually. So I would say that we've improved and we've, we've also increased our accuracy. Um, we got 500 different kinds of crude oil over the world that we are, uh, the different grades that we are keeping track of. And so we've done, we've done quite a lot over the past four years, I would say. What is one attribute that you believe every trader should have? Distance. I think the problem is that people get too emotionally locked into that trade and they start making their future plans based on that trade. They start seeing, oh, it's gone up this much. Therefore, you know, it's very linear from here on. It's just going to it's just going to continue rising. And it doesn't, you know, the market keeps you humble. It knows how to take that away from you. So I, I tell people, don't overnight any trade. If you're going to go in just for the day, then make sure you're out the same day. Uh, if you're going to go long term, then put it in a fund and just forget about it. Look at it just to feel good every now and then, but just forget about it. Go do something else with your life. Go learn something new. Uh, keep busy. Uh, don't be looking at the graph all day because that's just going to drive you insane. You can have a very productive uh, trading day, you know, the, the, the graph is moving, the needle is all over the place. Other days, you're just sitting there playing whatever, Tetris or whatever, just to kill time. And uh, I just tell people, don't get too emotionally involved or invested in, in, in your trade. What's the best piece of advice that you received about tracking tankers? Oh, I would say that... Uh, I've, I've received some very good advice from very good people in the industry. Um, I want to throw a shout out to Matt Smith of Clipper Data. He was extremely patient with me four years ago. Uh, we got together on Twitter for the first time, and he, he, uh, his company does uh, a lot of tracking, obviously. And uh, he's just a stellar guy to, to, to communicate with. He's, he's on CNBC every, every week almost. And uh, he's always been patient with me. And I thought, you know, no matter what he says, it doesn't matter. He, he responds with detailed answers. And so I, so I took it upon myself to do the same. And I have a very large following on Twitter. And I don't care who it is who's asking me the question. That person will get an answer from me. Because the way I figured is if we all if we improve the total knowledge of this hashtag OOTT community, the hashtag organization of oil trading tweeters, if, if the the total general knowledge improves, then trades will be a lot more effective and people will not buy a narrative that is media driven. That's the one thing I really fear is that this flock mentality that people just go uh, according to whatever uh, the talking heads on TV are, are going on about. So I think it's important to have uh, independent thought analysis, uh, gather as much data you can yourself, and even do it together as as, as a people on, on a social network. So, you know, the traffic jam data I talked about, that's something that we do together as a team. If you could go back and give the younger you a piece of advice after everything you've learned about trading in the oil markets, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. I'm still considering myself a student. I hate it when they throw me up on TV and they say, this is an expert. I, 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 um, I, I, every every week I'm learning something new. Honestly, Anthony, I'm I'm reading a lot about uh, different subtopics which are zero interest to anyone. But I I throw it all into the mix, and that's why I'm able to respond people uh, very quickly. 
and I have lots of facts and figures that I, I love to uh, throw into my uh, treasure chest. So I don't know. I mean, I, I think this is still a learning curve for me. It's just getting steeper and steeper and it's rising quickly. And uh, I love it. If you had an elevator pitch me your edge in tracking tankers, what would you say? Oh, um, I can tell you that we can actually see the tankers and and and, uh, and uh, let you know exactly how much is aboard and where they're going um, a lot better than the automated trackers can do. But I think the most important thing is that we can give you context, which no one else can, because they can see uh, an icon move across the map, but they will not understand what's actually going on. Sam. Thank you so much for sharing all this great insight with us today. Where can people follow you on Twitter and give us a website to check out? On Twitter, you can find me at Samir or S-A-M-I-R underscore Madani, M-A-D-A-N-I, Samir underscore Madani. And I am the co-founder and CEO of Tanker Trackers, uh, which is uh, at at Tanker Trackers on Twitter and TankerTrackers.com on, on our website. Sam, you're a great man. You're a great friend. Thank you for everything that you uh, are doing for the trading community. You know, I've been a huge supporter of yours for years because I just think you're uh, just a great guy and just do an unbelievable job. And thank you again so much for joining me on Futures Radio Show. The honor is completely mine, Anthony. Thank you so much for having me. And once again, uh, happy birthday to your brother. <laughs> That's right, my friend. Happy birthday to you. Ciao, fratello. Thank you for listening to Futures Radio Show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on iTunes. You can listen to all of our episodes on futuresradioshow.com, iTunes, YouTube, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher.